Welcome to New Books in Journalism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Bierma. The American press is older than the United States itself. Ever since its catalytic role in the American Revolution, journalism has evolved to meet changing political, economic, and technological demands. Gregory Borcher traces this history in A Narrative History of the American Press, published last year by Routledge. He calls for a better understanding of journalism's past at a time of acute concern about journalism's future. Borchard is a professor at the Hank Greenspun School of Journalism and Media Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Joining me now is Gregory Borchard, author of A Narrative History of the American Press. Gregory, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This book is not only a textbook for a journalism class, but it can serve and in some ways was meant to serve that function. Uh, What gap among current journalism textbooks, if there was one, was this book meant to fill? Well, for a publisher's purpose, I did want to supply a textbook that had a unified narrative throughout. I think the common approach with journalism history textbooks right now is to weave together contributions from a bunch of different authors who supply individual chapters on individual topics and form a thesis of some sorts. Usually the thesis is a bit disjointed. So in my estimation, um, the contribution I was able to provide was one voice from one author weaving together all the individual chapters based on my own interpretation Certainly subject to revision or additional comments from other readers, but um, at this point, it's one of the few books out there that actually does that. Journalism in North America is, of course, older than the United States itself, and so your book starts with the lead-up to the American Revolution and the role that the press played there, including publisher Benjamin Franklin. He's a very familiar figure, but perhaps not as a news publisher. Uh, Describe his role in that capacity, and how he developed a model that would become replicated by the emerging news business of decades and centuries after that. You are correct in your evaluation of Franklin. I think most people are familiar with him as this sort of eccentric character that experimented around with a kite and lightning and was a diplomat and a politician and all sorts of other endeavors. But if you check Franklin's autobiography, he himself wanted to be remembered first and foremost as a printer. That's That was his livelihood. He uh, existed primarily to print newspapers, according to Franklin. And he's got a lengthy biography that goes into all sorts of details. The major contributions he made to print, as we know it, included setting up a chain. He was a among the very first innovators in establishing a network of newspapers up and down the coast. He was very successful, too. For Franklin, money meant everything. Um, Without money, he couldn't publish. Without money, there was no incentive to be a publisher. And uh, he really did emphasize in his practice ways that publishers could make money and also readers could make money, too. You'll see in the contents of his newspapers, especially Poor Richard's Almanac, an emphasis on financial interests, 
whether it was trade or agricultural interests, um, business interests, um, everything was about money for Franklin. One of the best anecdotes to illustrate his business position is in that famous apology for printers column he ran in response to a potential lawsuit. There were readers who took offense to an advertisement that had run in one of his newspapers and were threatening a boycott. And Franklin had to come up with a response to the complaints about the content. He was faced with this dilemma as to whether he should start censoring certain kinds of content that would potentially offend people or run more content. And ultimately, he went with the latter, where he decided it's better to print as much content as possible with the risk of offending, perhaps, a handful of reader, but at the same time, attracting just as many, if not more readers who wouldn't be offended. And it's a very compelling model he established, and one that has survived for the most part, I think, all the way up through today, this idea that more content, more speech for that matter, is better than less. Although there is some question today as to whether or not it's still alive and well, you see more and more content providers trying to tailor to specific audiences and not offend their audience with certain kinds of content. Regardless, I think Franklin had it right in as much as more content is better because you get more readers that way. And ultimately, the bottom line is with more readers, you get more revenue as well. So it makes it possible to survive as a publisher. For any readers who have a simplistic story to tell of the history of journalism, which is that once journalism was committed to the objective telling of the truth, and it has been in a one-way decline since then, they're going to get a very different story when they read your book. And I think this is a theme throughout, but we start to sense it in the lead-up to the revolution as the press plays a propagandizing and agitating role, particularly as you talk about the Boston Massacre. And after the founding of the country, uh, especially during the Adams and Jefferson administrations, where it's the era of the partisan press and the and the role of the press is very specifically uh, to agitate its own side against the other. Uh, how do you hope uh, that your book helps readers take a critical look at what the press was doing during this era? Well, again, I think you're right in the analysis that we have um, some ideas, perhaps misconceptions, that journalism is supposed to be objective and just the facts. Um, maybe it is supposed to be objective and just the facts, but the reality is it's never really been that way. There have been moments and publishers who have taken that idea very seriously, but um, all throughout history, you see the press dabbling in partisanship and propaganda all the way back to the revolution itself, of course, but it's unavoidable. I think the the lesson to be learned from it is that we as readers or consumers of the press, if not practitioners, need to be aware of it. And in being aware of it, go to as many sources as possible, not rely on just one. Even if one publishes as much content as possible, we still have to be open to other voices as well. 
uh, knowing full well that there's no one voice that can possibly capture the reality or the totality of events, especially in the current era, too. It, if uh, we rely exclusively on one source, whether it's online or broadcast or even print at this point, we're not going to get the full picture. And in fact, we may wind up getting a very stilted or unobjective presentation of the facts. So it's uh, a lesson more for the consumer than the publisher. I'm not sure the publishers are going to change in much respect, but as readers, we should uh, take that point very seriously. Yeah, so this is the question I wanted to build up to and end with, but uh, I have no patience, uh, so I, I, I've got to ask it now. Uh, as we look at the current media landscape and social media and the echo chambers and the Facebook news algorithm where people can live in this bubble where they only hear points of view they're predisposed to agree with, uh, and we lament that, and we should, and yet as I was reading your book, uh, our current era most closely resembles this pre- and immediately post-revolutionary period of the partisan press. That's right. And I'm not the first to make that observation. I know there are other contemporary scholars who have compared the current climate to the partisan press era, or as it's called, the dark ages of journalism. I think there are some similarities. They're certainly not identical by any means in terms of the models of distribution and the ways people access news. But when you look at the content, I think there are some parallels. Uh, the period right after the revolution was hyper-partisan, uh, very split between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, in as much as the stakes were very high. Uh, both Hamilton and Jefferson realized that they were playing for keeps that uh, the course of the nation after the revolution depended in part on which direction people would subscribe to if they were going to align with this idea of a highly centralized government or one that relied on a collection of states. And uh, there wasn't much room for being in between at the time. We describe this era as the dark ages of journalism because there were very few moderate voices. We do have records of what was published at the time, of course, in the major newspapers, but the records we have reflect almost entirely Federalist or Anti-Federalist content. And um, today, I think you do see some very similar parallels in as much as people are split very much left or right I think the strange thing about today is that uh, people don't necessarily align with partisan positions as much as they don't align with partisan positions. They mm. um, generally don't come up with arguments for what they support as much as what they're against. And uh, you still find commonalities among people who say, I'm either against Trump or against Hillary uh, or the Democrats, however you want to phrase it at this point. And they come up with a long list of reasons. And yet, at the same time, there's very little ground in between. And uh, yeah, I think we may have some dark ages 
in our midst at this point too. There's um, very little common ground today as there was during the partisan era. The next major and highly influential development in journalism in the 19th century was the advent of the penny press. And again, the contemporary ties just seem so strong. To me, the internet is the penny press without the pennies. But tell us, what was the penny press and how did the economic scale of the penny press come to dictate content and coverage of what was in the penny press? I see the penny press as a bit of fresh air uh, after the dark ages where the publishing models loosened up and the content loosened up too. It wasn't so partisan that um, it alienated people. In fact, the whole purpose of the penny press was to attract as many readers as possible. Just by lowering the price, it made it possible for people on the streets to pick up a newspaper. And you see in the content a reflection of that approach. The stories that were included were of everyday interest. There were, there was the good, the bad, and the ugly of the penny press era. And there were some real innovative practices and techniques that got put into place. But there was also an emphasis on the, the baser or seedier side of human interests with scandal and violence and uh, sort of gratuitous nonsense from time to time, too. Regardless, you saw people on an everyday basis interacting with the press much more directly. And you do see that today as well uh, with social media, certainly. Uh, again, it's not um, exactly a direct comparison. In some ways, it's apples and oranges because uh, I think uh, the social media model of today emphasizes finding out directly what your friends are up to, what your friends and neighbors and all the rest were up to. But um, during the penny press era, people still relied on a gatekeeper, so to speak, to do that job for them. And so again, if your complaint about the news media today is that it resorts to sensationalism in order to attract a wide audience, that first happened in the 1830s. I would suggest, although I'm sure somebody could make the case that it happened well before then, too, throughout different eras of history. Heck, uh, archaeologists have gone back to the ancient Romans and discovered graffiti on walls describing the exploits of certain neighbors and all the rest. But as far as American press history, yes, generally you can point to the penny press as what we'd call the first wave of sensationalism. And sensationalism, in part, depended on a lot of newspaper sales and a lot of advertisers as well. It wasn't just the circulation counts. Um, the circulation counts attracted advertisers, which helped pay the bills. Um, you do see a, a decrease in sensationalism around the mid-19th century, in part because of the telegraph. It cost money to transmit information via telegraph, so publishers had to scale back a bit on the kinds of words that they used and just the quantity of words they used too. They weren't able to indulge in all sorts of sensational stories when they were using the telegraph. But you see it emerge again towards the end of the 19th century with yellow journalism and muckraking. I, 
refer to this era as the second wave of sensationalism, first being penny press, second wave being yellow journalism. And there have been other waves since then. You could make the case that we're going through a wave of sensationalism now, I suppose, too, with the heavy emphasis on reality stars. Uh, there's a reason people like Kim Kardashian are always in the news, and uh, it's in part because of the sensational content. It's cheap. It's practically free, especially on social media, that um, people are drawn to that for whatever reason. Sensationalism is an old ingredient in news, and it comes and goes in waves. Um, we'll see uh, if the current climate is replaced by something of a more facts-only approach. Uh, it all depends on, in some cases, technology. We have to wait and see what the next technological innovations will bring. You mentioned the move toward just the facts and more objective reporting in mid-19th century. This is when the New York Times is founded. And as you pointed out, if anyone thinks that uh, just the facts emerged out of uh, primarily uh, ethical and noble principles about fairness and truth, um, you attribute that emergence more toward uh, both the commercial imperative to attract a wide audience and not offend uh, one side at the expense of the other, but also, as you mentioned, just the constraints of the telegraph. Uh, as with Twitter today, the number of characters was limited or at least costly, and it was some of those pragmatic constraints that led to these deeper principles about objective reporting. That's right. Um, I think it's a fairly complex issue or development. It, it might be easy to boil it down just to the telegraph, but there are certainly other factors involved. The telegraph is an excellent way of interpreting it or illustrating this, this change in tone, but I, I also humanize it as much as possible, too. I think one of the primary characters in this development would have been Henry Raymond with the New York Times. And as it turns out, Henry Raymond was at the right place at the right time, given the technological developments of his era. Um, Raymond, on a personal level, had a fairly conservative mindset and uh, was very business-oriented. And with business-oriented mindset, people generally want just the facts. They don't want somebody else interpreting for them. They want to be able to interpret it for themselves. Um, his story is pretty compelling in as much as he got started with Horace Greeley at the New York Tribune, actually even before the New York Tribune, but um, found Greeley's approach to news to be a little too far out and decided to go into business for himself and eventually launched the New York Times as an essentially fact-oriented publication coincidentally enough, at the same time that the telegraph was emerging as a very powerful medium for delivering information. So when you get the telegraph and its facts-only approach combined with the New York Times approach to business interests, you've got a pretty powerful mix that helps to develop this idea of facts-only. Now, there's a big asterisk in all of this, of course. Um, Raymond himself was not 
necessarily by any means just a facts only kind of guy. He was very much into politics, very partisan in his own thinking. And um, as much as he tried to make the New York Times the newspaper of record, as we now call it, um, he himself dabbled in all sorts of political endeavors. So there are ironies, there are coincidences, there are um, complexities involved in all of this. And as easy as it is for us to try to emphasize just the facts, it's a lot more complicated than that in hindsight. You mentioned Horace Greeley, and you've written a book on Horace Greeley and Abraham Lincoln a few years back, and I understand it's being or has been re-released. Introduce us to Horace Greeley and explain his significance in uh, 19th century political and journalism history. I've been drawn to Greeley for decades now. Actually, uh, when I was a grad student at Florida, I first really formally encountered his work and um, was mesmerized by the contents of the New York Tribune. He did really did perfect a model of trying to publish as many voices as possible. And his uh, rationale for doing so is to try to create a voice of constructive democracy, as it was called. Um, the idea was if you get more and more people participating in the newspaper, you can help to build a better society. Um, there were other models out there that emphasized lots of content as a way to make a lot of money. But in Greeley's mind, he was doing this essentially as a public service to try to help build the United States up instead of, well, tearing it down with all sorts of scandal and sensational content. He's a complicated figure. People are still trying to figure him out to this day. There has been a lot written about him which ordinarily would discourage historians from trying to write anything new. But given the fact that he was so complicated and enigmatic, I took it as a challenge to try to come up with a, a new angle on his legacy. And what I was able to do with the book, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Horace Greeley, was tie together their ideological threads as well as possible. They were contemporaries. They even served in Congress together. I think that's a fairly little known fact. And they helped to develop two major political platforms or agendas that eventually wound up getting put into place through the federal government. Greeley was a big proponent of Western settlement. He actually penned the language in the Homestead Act that Lincoln later signed off on in his administration. And Lincoln was a proponent of anti-slavery, which Greeley eventually picked up on during the Civil War and penned the famous Prayer of the 20 Millions. In a lot of ways, these guys were on the same page and they uh, worked as a tag team. They were also on completely different pages from time to time. They had this intriguing love-hate relationship where in some cases Greeley was always giving Lincoln a hard time and Lincoln had some disparaging words for Greeley from time to time. But in the end, they had more in common than 
they didn't have in common. And uh, I think that story is one that can be told and has been told. And it's apparently uh, done well enough for a second edition at this point. I'm pretty happy with the success of the, the book so far. And we'd love to have you back to hear more about that book uh, down the road. For now, let me ask you um, more about the um, 19th century and some of the major figures in it, most of whom are male, but two notably are female, Nellie Bly and Ida B. Wells. Both became very prominent writers and very influential in American life. Could you introduce them and explain how prominent and influential they became? Sure. Uh, it is a bit tricky when we uh, get to the subject of women in journalism especially in the 19th century, because uh, if you look at the records, there are just a handful of really remarkable women that stand out. But as I try to point out, um, there are more that we don't know about. There is something happening in the 19th century that isn't happening today. They didn't really emphasize bylines like we do now. And and we should explain byline simply being the line that says who the story is by, so the author's name. That's right. And there are at least indirect indications that there were more women involved in journalism than we actually know of from bylines themselves. I'm a fan of Margaret Fuller's story. I think she uh, contributed enormously to not just journalism, but American history, world history for that matter, too, as a writer for the New York Tribune. And um, the book also mentions Elizabeth Timothy. There are others throughout the eras, too. But when it comes to rock stars, you know, the real high profile names, Nellie Bly and Ida Wells certainly stand out. Um, Nellie Bly is significant in as much as she was a woman doing a man's job, and she did it spectacularly. She did a job that no man would have done and uh, did some good while she was at it, too. She's most famous for having traveled around the world in 72 days, which was an amazing feat uh, at the time, perhaps equivalent to going to the moon. Nobody had done this before, but she did it as a a stunt for the New York world, which in itself is a real clever way of promoting the newspaper around the world for the New York world. Um, it engaged readers all throughout the United States, all throughout the world, even at one point, she was the most famous person alive. Um, the story that a lot of people don't know about Nellie Bly is that she was also very brave. She went into an insane asylum. She feigned insanity in order to get direct access to the conditions of Blackwell's Island, which is a very harrowing feat and, um, frankly, I would think terrifying. But um, she did it successfully and was able to expose the conditions that were facing people who had been put into this asylum and created reform. In a way, she was a muckraker and a stunt journalist and a female uh, journalist who was a pioneer. There aren't really any adequate labels for Nellie Bly. She was a, a rock star in her own right. And same with Ida B. Wells, um, another very brave journalist who did something that 
no man would do either. Um, I think the, the real lesson journalistically with Ida Wells is that she was able to address lynching in conditions that ordinarily would have led to her death. The reason people had such a hard time even writing about lynching journalistically was because the backlash associated with the publication of this sorts inevitably would have led to a lynching of the writer. But Ida Wells was brave. She's um, known for a quote associated with her, one had better die fighting injustice than die like a rat in a trap. And um, she lived that credo. I, I put her in contrast with Henry Raymond. Henry Raymond was this guy who was very dispassionate. One of his quotes was, there are very few things in life worth getting angry about, and they're just the sort of things that anger won't improve, which is true. But um, at the same time, you can take that side or you can take Ida Wells's side and say, you know what, there are things that are worth getting angry about, and um, I'm going to do something about it. She did. And um, yeah, she was a, a suffragist, a pioneer for black women's rights as well. Um, she's a real pioneer ahead of the marches in the 1950s and 60s. Even she sort of set the standard for um, putting her life on the line to create social change. In this category that I'm really interested in, in things that I thought were true about journalism as a journalist, uh, and have since been disabused of. One is the names of Hearst and Pulitzer as names that have come to symbolize the highest ideals of journalism. Those who earn the Pulitzer Prize have accomplished great things uh, and are at the paramount of their profession. And yet these are names of newspaper publishers in the late 19th century who drove a yellow journalism and the run-up to the Spanish-American War. Uh, did you have a sense that you might be um, spoiling some journalism heroes for people as you talked about Hearst and Pulitzer? Those two uh, are hard to wrap your head around. I've had a long, hard time trying to figure out exactly how to characterize both of these guys. Uh, Hearst especially, I think in general, people have a pretty negative view of Hearst as this sort of evil mastermind behind the newspaper that he used to manipulate for political purposes. And there are all sorts of anecdotes and stories out of history attached to Hearst that make him look like a, a real villainous character. But And he was the basis for the character in Citizen Kane, is that right? Right. Yeah. Um, Orson Welles was among many people who took shots at Hearst. Um, I guess the, the more I find out about Hearst, the more nuanced his legacy becomes. Um, he did pull some real nasty stunts from time to time and uh, character assassinate uh, all sorts of different people along the way. He was also more or less a typical publisher at this point. That's the scary thing. I guess Hearst set the standard for what publishers would become, which he is to uh, blame in some respects, but just because he did it doesn't mean everybody else has to do it. And I guess in that respect, Hearst was strangely enough, a very innovative character. Um, the Pulitzer, I think rightfully, 
deserves more praise. Uh, he he did engage in yellow journalism for sure. But his rationale for doing so was to try to entertain as many people as possible and get them engaged with the content of his newspapers as well as possible, the news stories too. Uh, he was targeting a much wider audience than previously had been targeted, including immigrants from Eastern Europe, from all over the world, actually, with cartoons, in some cases, real kind of silly, frivolous stuff. But by getting people to open up the newspaper, they would also read stories about what it meant to be an American and how to participate in American life, how to make their lives better, how to get off the streets. A lot of folks reading Pulitzer's papers and Hearst papers, for that matter, too, were in pretty bad shape economically. And uh, both of them, both Hearst and Pulitzer, had those readers in mind. Pulitzer, kind of like Horace Greeley, I think, was trying to lift up his readers and give them hope or something to believe in. Hearst, in a much more kind of calloused way, was trying to target them for votes. Um, Hearst did have designs on political office and realized that if he could get support from the working class or immigrants, he would stand a better chance at getting elected. So they're complex. My bottom line, I guess I've resigned to the idea that there's really not a lot of point in judging them morally or personally from a 21st century standpoint as much as just trying to see as well as possible what they did, how they did it, and what long-term effect they had on the newspaper industry or media in general so that we can try to learn from both their mistakes and their successes too and apply those lessons to contemporary practice as well as possible. I've asked you mostly so far about the 19th century, uh, in part because these are some really formative stories that I do think at least I misunderstood or didn't understand well at all. Um, I'll assure readers that there is as much about the 20th century in your book um, as there is about uh, the 19th and 18th. Um, for time reasons today, we won't be able to do justice to it. I will ask you about the birth of public relations. And if you had a negative view about public relations, um, this story might appeal to you. Um, as you point out, public relations can be a very noble enterprise, particularly when it comes to spreading the word about nonprofits doing good in the world. But its origin story lies in an event I didn't know about, although it's commemorated in a Woody Guthrie song, the Ludlow Massacre. What was that event, and how did it give rise to PR as an industry and as a way to spin the press? I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I've been increasingly drawn to alternative sources, especially with this era, um, the early 20th century. It is hard to piece through exactly what happened um, at Ludlow, and not just at Ludlow, at all sorts of other locations where there was labor unrest. This was a, an intense period in the early 20th century where labor unions were starting to organize and go on strike, and the outcome was generally violent. Um, problem is we don't have a lot of records about exactly what happened, and the reason why 
in at least some cases is that PR was first starting to flex its muscle and go to work on behalf of the industrialists. The Lidlow massacre is not the only example of this, but it's a good one. It, I think it illustrates how PR went to work at the time fairly well. And uh, I mean, the short story is that uh, there was a strike at a mine in Colorado, in Ludlow, Colorado, and the mine was owned by Rockefeller. Rockefeller's son was on site at the time. He tried to figure out how to contain the strike. So his dad, John Rockefeller, told him, get those people back to work as the son responded. He called the governor of Colorado. The governor issued the National Guard, and one thing led to another. Eventually, there were more than 20 people who got killed. We we're still not entirely sure how many, but the people included women and children. And as it turned out, uh, Rockefeller's PR representatives Ivy Ledbetter Lee with Parker and Lee wound up having to go to work. I, I don't think this is necessarily the birth of PR, but it is certainly one of the very first, very dramatic cases of crisis management that PR was asked to manage. And uh, Ivy Lee went to work by flooding the press with press releases, going to Congress to testify as to what happened, Ultimately, in the end, what we wound up with was a very Rockefeller-friendly version of events. The only traces of primary sources from the workers' perspective can dig up um, are either in some fairly obscure publications or, as you noted in this Woody Guthrie song I've discovered, that song itself was released years after the event, but it is a very good description from the workers' perspective of what happened. In fact, I know from reading Howard Zinn's People's History that this is one of the very few that first sources that Zinn ran into when he was researching this event. And had it not been for Woody Guthrie, we may not have any record of, at all of what happened at Ludlow from the workers' perspective. It, it's a very complex, this is a tragic era in terms of historical records and all the rest, it could simply be uh, an era for additional historical research, too. If anybody can find more primary sources outside of the PR angle or PR spin, I'm sure it would make a very compelling history in itself. In looking ahead later in the 20th century, obviously Watergate is a key foundational story in the history of journalism. Um, and it follows an era in which the press was much more cozy with the White House and with the federal government, and yet it established this uh, role of the watchdog, the press calling uh, the government on its corruption and on its crimes, um, that I think has become a or the primary role that the press sees itself as today. Um, how would you evaluate that watchdog role historically? Is that the most important role the press has or can play in American history? I would like to think so. And it has precedent before Watergate. I, I actually point to Alexis de Tocqueville's 
account of uh, democracy in America in which you start to see this idea of the fourth estate starting to percolate. It was something traded between the French and the, the Americans after things settled down with the revolution. Um, the fourth estate being this branch, not of the government, of, but of the people to watch the government. From this, we get the watchdog idea, too. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein, like many of the characters you will run into in the history of journalism, happened to be at the right place at the right time. These two were not world-class journalists, um, at least not up until they ran into the Watergate scoop, but they became world-class journalists by doing their job correctly. And I think the puzzling part for today with Watergate is that generally today you'll see journalists point to Woodward and Bernstein as something like deities. They're the ultimate. Um, are they one of the great stories of 20th century journalism? And they are. But the problem is that um, people elevate Woodward and Bernstein to the point where they're untouchable when, in fact, I think what they did is something that contemporary journalists can do and should do on a daily basis anyway. It's a little dangerous to hold these two up to pedestals when it winds up um, making it easier for contemporary journalists to not do their job. The, the uh, things that Woodward and Bernstein did really effectively included getting deep background information and then confirming it with three named sources. What we've seen since then, apparently, is this tendency to get deep background information and not even bother to confirm it with additional sources where you wind up with anonymous sources being the focus of stories. And in a sense, Trump is correct when he calls this fake news. If there's no named source, there's no reliability attached to it. Um, it's very dangerous. People have taken Woodward and Bernstein's work and turned it into something else. So um, I don't know. I, I guess there's a mixed legacy with the Watergate coverage in as much as, yes, it was done correctly. It got... Um, spectacular results and as much as Richard Nixon had to resign. I mean, it doesn't get much more dramatic than that. But in the end, I'm not entirely sure the lessons have been learned or applied from what Woodward and Bernstein did. At least there's still room for improvement in that area. As you talk about the current contemporary era, you say that technology and other economic factors in the current climate have, quote, transformed the meaning, content, and delivery of the news, end quote. Can you explain each of those? Well, uh, in this case, I think it'd be easiest just to focus on social media and even more specifically Facebook and Twitter as uh, among the more popular forms of social media. You do see a real compression of what had been long-form storytelling. Um, there's very little narrative attached to it. Uh, at one point, the internet was seen as this real kind of savior or democratizing 
agent that was going to make everybody on the same playing field. We could all be journalists with Facebook and Twitter. That idea or ideal has gotten a bit more cynical these days in as much as we see people sharing information about what they had for lunch or what their friends did, this and that. And every once in a while, they will link to actual news stories, but the news stories are those that are provided by major news outlets. And we're in a tough situation right now. I think we're in a moment of transformation in as much as there's only one way to go, and that's up in terms of finding a new model that will help to deliver information of substantial value above and beyond simple updates from friends and family members that includes a more holistic view of the world and national events. Um, the content itself, I don't want to pass it off as insubstantial or irrelevant, but uh, I think we're mostly looking in to ourselves at this point instead of looking out. And it's going to take some event, I don't know what, um, to transform transform that vision outward again. I, I do try to wrap up semester lectures in the history of journalism as well as possible saying, okay, folks, look, you're all in your 20s. You're about to go into the profession. You have an opportunity to come up with the next model. And we're all waiting in anticipation to see what it is. And based on the history of journalism, it's just a matter of time before somebody comes up with the next model. You can see all throughout the 18th, 19th, 20th century, the way these things, these models rise and fall and they're replaced by new ones. I think we're seeing signs right now that Facebook is, well, um, if not in trouble, having to readjust at least to figure out how to meet new demands. and. Um, come up with a different way of reaching out to people. And I have faith and hope that uh, our contemporary generation of students are going to come up with the next best thing. Finally, Gregory, you mentioned the charge of fake news, and you point out there is a legitimate critique to make about the use of anonymous and deep background sources. At the same time, President Trump and his supporters often use the charge of fake news to attempt to discredit any unfavorable coverage whatsoever and delegitimize the role of journalists uh, as existing at all. Um, as I read your book, I found this to be rather unprecedented, that journalists are now having to defend their very existence and their very uh, attempt to do their job um, as never before. Is it unprecedented, and is there anything journalists can do um, in the face of this new kind of attack? I like to take a much more minimalistic approach to fake news. The, uh, the precedent for fake news that comes to my mind, at least, is with the moon hoax back in 1835 with Benjamin Day. And yeah, it was fake for sure. But there was also a, a real rationale behind it, too. It wasn't done... Um, nearly as insidiously as it's cast these days. 
let me pause and explain. So this is a, a deliberately fabricated story about life discovered on the moon, which in the 1830s was easy enough uh, to believe, or at least easy enough, uh, difficult to discredit. Um, and it was picked up and syndicated by other papers, which they were falling into a trap of stealing other content uh, from the source, which I believe was the New York Sun. Exactly. Okay. And um, you're right that the, the problem today is that when somebody calls something fake news. It's just an easy out. It's just an easy way of saying, I disagree with the content of your story, therefore it's fake, which is a lazy approach to actually understanding news. And it's dangerous too, especially if the news isn't fake. If uh, journalists have actually done their homework and published credible material with reliable sources, you can't just dismiss it because you don't like it. But um, the problem with fake news is being able to identify it. With the moon hoax, it was easily identifiable. There's also a bigger rationale, much bigger than simply partisan purposes. It was an attempt to sell newspapers more than anything. There, there has been fake news designed to do that recently. The clickbait stories that are everywhere, it seems, uh, those are fake news. And yeah, it's a problem, but the bigger problem is just uh, demonizing the entire fourth estate for content that somebody, uh, a politician, may find objectionable. And I, I don't know if uh, the politicians are going to help in any respect. That's been a, a problem for as long as newspapers have been around. Heck, uh, John Adams helped pass the alien sedition acts in which editors were put in jail for publishing material that was allegedly a threat to national security as did wilson with the espionage act as we've seen more recently with the patriot act it's one of the ongoing stories of um, the federal government's experience at least with the best thing a journalist can do to counteract these allegations of fake news is simply to make sure that they have sources. I, I would think it's not asking anybody too much to include name sources that are verifiable and check out with additional sources as well. Um, the facts don't care about your feelings, so to speak, and uh, I think that's got to be the, the one redeeming grace in all of this. Gregory Borchard, the book is A Narrative History of the American Press. It's an in-depth look at each of these eras and modifications and stages of evolution of journalism throughout American history. And as you point out, hopefully a way of understanding what might be coming next in the history of journalism. Gregory, we really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate it. Gregory Borchard is the author of A Narrative History of the American Press, published by Routledge last year. Borchard teaches journalism at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He is the editor of Journalism History, a quarterly scholarly journal. I'm Nathan Bierma. You've been listening to New Books in Journalism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 